Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Because breastfeeding is a natural way for babies to receive nutrition, many of us assume that it should be easy. But the reality is often very different. In this episode, we speak to four women about their respective breastfeeding journeys. We talk about how different the experience can be from child to child, how distressing it is to see your baby hungry, the excruciating pain of sore nipples, and how it is to breastfeed a toddler. The panel today consists of Saga Wilkinson, designer maker, mother to a seven-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. Natalie Jobling, doula and hypnobirthing teacher and founder of Joy Birth, mother to a five-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. Eliza Flynn, pre- and postnatal personal trainer and founder of The Warrior Method, mother to three boys, five years, four years and four weeks respectively. Barira Limpada, development facilitator and coach and mother to an eight- and six-year-old girl. My name is Caroline Johansson, and you are listening to the podcast To Become a Mother. Welcome, Saga, Natalie, Barira, and Eliza. Very nice of you to come today. So, Today we are speaking about breastfeeding and it's a topic which can evoke many emotions for which there are so many different experiences, as many as there are women really. But today it's your story that we will hear. And to start with, I'd really like to ask you if you had any preconceived ideas that you came into motherhood with about breastfeeding that you'd heard from your mom or sibling or friend, Saga. I just presumed I'd be able to, that that's what I would do. That was my preconceived ideas about breastfeeding. Yeah. Barira? I think similarly, I also imagined that it would be much more natural and painless journey. Somehow the word natural evokes the fact that it comes easily, it flows easily. And that I think for a lot of women is not necessarily the case. But also for me personally, It was central to my idea of motherhood. I couldn't conceive of not breastfeeding. Breastfeeding was central to my idea of what being a mother was. And what did that come from? I'm not sure where that came from. It definitely didn't come from my family background. Mm. I have family members, most of whom didn't breastfeed. But I imagine it's around in the cultural context. The images of motherhood that you do see are very often this very nurturing mother-child snuggled together and somehow breastfeeding is the kind of natural progression of that. 
Eliza, is that something you can relate to? Absolutely. I don't think it ever occurred to me that I wouldn't breastfeed. It was just one of those things where it was, you know, you become a mum and then it just seemed the natural thing to do. And I think, like Barrera said, for me, I was slightly outraged that Mother Nature had <laughs> fooled me somehow. Because again, <laughs> I thought that since it was a sort of a natural thing to do, that it would come quite easily. Mm. And for me, it was quite a hellish experience. But one that I I definitely felt like I needed to do. And we get to that hellish experience later on. Um, but just Natalie, what did you come into this? I assumed that I would do it. I was like, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, fine, cool. I'm not going to put that pressure on myself. My mum had breastfed. I'd seen her breastfeeding my brother. I think she'd breastfed me for about nine months and my brother for six. And I think I just assumed, I was like, that's what people do and I'll do it. But maybe if I don't feel inclined to do it, I'm not going to do it. And I just, yeah, wasn't, I didn't think it would consume me as much as it then did. And then I think when I did start to feed and breastfeed, it was, this is what I meant to be doing. And like, I didn't expect that feeling. Yeah. And so you all came into it thinking, this is something I'm going to do. And it came you know, thinking that was a, a natural thing to mm-hmm. do. Did you do anything to prepare or did you just assume this will work? I went to a really strange antenatal session at the hospital <laughs> where they literally held up a knitted boob and got a, <laughs> I can't remember if it was a hand or a doll and just put the hand or the doll on the knitted boob and said, this is how you feed end of conversation (laughs) and I was like oh it's gonna be that easy (laughs) and yeah and that was my (laughs) education yeah for some people including me it really is that easy I mean I I know that lots of people find it challenging but I think there are a lot of people that it's not so difficult with my daughter it was she literally latched within moments of birth and Mm. I think it's really a real privilege that that happened you know with the work that I do I see such varying journeys and it's great when you go to that antenatal session and they have the knitted boob and the doll and they say this is how you latch and that works for you but the big problem in the country is that that is a quite a small minority of people and I Mm. think we're really lucky that that happened and that's where there's a failing. Barira, how was, did you do any preparation? So I went to the same antenatal class with the knitted boob. <laughs> um, so I had that experience, but I also did an NCT antenatal class and they actually devoted a fair amount of time to breastfeeding. I remember, I think there was a couple of weekends um, where they had classes or workshops around breastfeeding and lots of information around where to get support with breastfeeding. But even there, I don't think it sufficiently prepared me for the actual reality of what breastfeeding would be like. Mm. Do you think Um, anything would? No, I'm not sure anything because I think it is such an individual journey that all you can do is, you know, however useful the knitted boob may or may not be. (laughs) But I think the thing that was useful was having the list of support um, and having a list of places that you could kind of turn to for Mm -hmm. guidance. Eliza, what was your preparation? There was no preparation. I don't know if this is something that would have helped, but I think because I just seen so many pictures and art galleries and stuff of very peaceful babies 
feeding. Mm. I just imagined that's how it would be. And I had lots of friends who were breastfeeding, but no one ever really spoke about whether it was easy or whether it was hard. So it didn't occur to me that it was going to be anything but yeah. okay. Yeah. And that was a bit of a shock. So I was very, very grateful for all the support that we could get because there was a lot of it around, especially mm. I think in my area. And um, in terms of the first two weeks of the baby's life, like that's normally the most time intensive period or intense period, full stop, to get everything up and going. Do you remember that period? How, how was that, Eliza? I mean, I'm, I'm still shocked that my little one is four weeks old because it feels like so much time has passed yet so little time has passed yeah and it's a bit of a blur but all I remember was I mean I answered the door with a boob hanging out (laughs) it's you know you're sort of half naked half the time and I I did this one very differently from my first two where I was very much so much more responsive and a lot more confident with it Mm. so this time around everything was a lot easier but it's a bit of a blur where you are half awake half asleep trying to deal with the weird rush of hormones and two children who are sort of wondering what's going on and why you're not around so much. But yeah, it it was just a case of literally drinking lots of water. Mm. And I never got the sort of hunger that you get with a lot lot of people get when they're breastfeeding. So it was just literally sitting around with a boob or two out and a whole bunch of breast pads. So you have three boys. And I understand that your uh, experience with the first two was quite different to the one you're, uh, to Caspian, your little one. Yes. Uh, Can you explain a bit more about your first two? With my first, he came out and I thought that we were doing just fine with breastfeeding. But then he started breathing a little bit like Darth Vader. Um, And luckily we're still at the hospital and it turned out he had a microcleft. So we then spent two weeks in NICU. And he also had a deviated septum, which meant that he actually couldn't feed as well as they wanted him to. And you didn't discover that until... After he was born. After, Yeah, but in, in terms of that, the feeding wasn't going well. Did you discover that when the weight went down or did you feel that something was... Kind of. We only We discovered it sort of probably about 12 hours after he was born. Uh, okay. Um, and they sort of were, they were a bit just like, no, his breathing is a little bit weird. Let's mm. see what we can kind of do about it and what needs to be done. And then they sort of were like, oh, he actually does have a bit of a microcleft. Oops. I've just been puked on. Mm. Um, yeah, so they discovered he had a bit of a microcleft. And then they had to sort of do some more tests. And that was when they were a bit just like, oh, actually, it's unlikely that he's going to be able to feed as much as he needs to. Because I think when they're feeding, they also need to be able to breathe. Mm. And because he had a deviated septum, it was harder for him to do that. So he was tube fed for a little bit. And then they were also very insistent that if I wanted to breastfeed, would have to kind of try and establish that without him being on the breast so much. So there was this awful moment when my husband had this tiny syringe and I was squeezing my boob and he was dragging it across my nipple to try and harvest colostrum, you know, and you're just so elated when you get sort of one tiny (laughs) milliliter and you're just like, yes, this is amazing. (laughs) So those first two weeks were particularly hard because I was spending a lot of time in what we call the milking room where, you know, you have the industrial breast pumps and you're there just trying to get what you can. But at the same time, I was incredibly lucky because being in hospital, there was a lot of support. So they did a lot to sort of help establish that with lactation consultations and different people coming to help. Yeah. 
Barrera, how um, were the first few weeks for you getting it established? You have two girls. Was it very different between the girls? It was, yeah, absolutely different. My second one, my, my younger daughter, we did what's called the kind of biological nurturing, which is, you know, you place them on and she literally kind of kicked and bobbed her way up to the boob within minutes and like latched on and fed beautifully. And it was such a rewarding moment. But my first daughter, she didn't feed for the first three days. And so we were doing that, that whole thing of getting the kind of squeezing the boob and trying to get some colostrum out and a teaspoon and then getting it into a syringe. We did all of that. But also for me... I have a heart condition which presented itself during my pregnancy. So just after my daughter was born, I had to have an x-ray where they put a radioactive dye in me. So within the first week of my daughter being born, I wasn't able to hold her for three days, much less breastfeed her, just as the milk supply was being established. And we already had problems around feeding, etc. And that really disrupted the flow of my milk coming through. And so from then onwards, it was almost like a six months battle of like trying to make sure that I had enough milk for her. So that was maybe about day seven. So I remember spending day seven and eight trying to pump as much as I could Mm. as my milk's coming in. And it was very little. It was dishearteningly little in the hope that she wouldn't have to go into formula. But we did have to eventually put her onto formula and I wasn't able to breastfeed her for about four or five days as my milk supply came in. So there I had this abundance of milk for a time being and wasn't able to then feed her. I was trying to express and dump, but then got engorged. And then I remember learning about cabbage leaves helping with <laughs> engorgement. So I put cabbage leaves and lay in the bath and then my milk supply completely dried up. And that first two weeks was just, or even longer than the first, but especially those first two weeks was just so disruptive. My body didn't know what was going on. So yeah, and then like I said, after that, it was a kind of, it was a battle to make sure that I was producing enough milk for her to be weaned off the formula. And you said um, earlier that breastfeeding was so central to your idea of being a mom and motherhood. It must have been very distressing having that battle. Absolutely. And there was also just this franticness around. I remember just being absolutely frantic to try and make sure that I was getting enough milk so that she would be able to be covered for the for the duration that I was unable to hold her. And looking back, I'm not sure, you know, why I did that to myself. But it was incredibly difficult and painful to watch her be given the bottle, particularly because, you know, a been to these workshops etc and you hear this idea that you know once they start taking the bottle it'll be much harder for them to latch on we'd already had issues with latching on so I remember like researching you know milk bottle teats to see which is the one that mimics most natural you know the breast and yeah it was a really difficult period and like I said it didn't stop once we resumed the breastfeeding because there was this constant battle to get enough milk and it, it was slightly obsessive in the fact that I would go for f- to friends house for dinner parties and at the end of dinner I would sit there with the breast pump having just fed my daughter and expressing milk pervading logic being that the more I express the more kind of demand I put on my body the more the supply would increase and would eventually get to this place where I was producing enough milk. And you said slightly obsessive what did people around you think were they very supportive of you continuing like say your partner, your family, or did they think, just give it up? I think definitely my family, just like, 
what is this about? Yeah. What are you proving here? Mm. And I certainly felt a pressure from them. And probably my sense of being slightly obsessive came from the fact that they were just looking at me slightly bizarrely most of the time. My friends were wonderfully supportive. But it was, yeah, it was the back of the minicabs. I would be, bre- I would have the breast pump out and you'd just hear this bizarre sound oh, of the machine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then I remember this one time there was, you know, the bus was at the traffic lights next to me. And so everybody in the bus, was, I was underneath something, but there was just this, I was weirdly kind of fondling my breasts whilst everybody in the bus was watching. It was just, it was a very uh, intense experience. Oh God, yeah. Saga, you mentioned earlier that it came very naturally to you and with both your two children, it was very easy. Can you explain the first few weeks? I guess the key thing was that both me and my husband were on board with me breastfeeding and he says he's proud of the fact that I was able to. So I felt his support and I think that's really important, you know, that that someone's there that wants you to do it. And, you know, both my children fed really easily. I had no issue. I bought pajamas, which had buttons down the front. I stayed in bed and fed the kids. My husband made sure there was a jug of water by the bed all the time. And then once we were out, once I was, we were more out and about, I felt confident to be able to breastfeed in public. Mm. Once I was more established, I felt that that was a really important thing to just keep doing, you know, for the visibility of to normalize breastfeeding really mm. um but really i just fed both kids i mean the second one was harder because i had sudden onset car- carpal tunnel which when i couldn't i couldn't feel either of my hands yeah which is quite challenging because little babies they don't know where your nipples are <laughs> and, you know and that's the bit that i sort of forgot you know like the f- you literally put your their face on your boob and when you can't feel either of your hands trying to get a boob in their mouth in the dark, you know, was a bit annoying. It wasn't not difficult, but it wasn't, you know, like just was what it was, you Mm -hmm. know. And I just spent a lot of time in bed watching shit on TV, you know, really. But even if you have a very easy, like a child that latches easily and it's technically, it's all fine. Yeah, it just takes a long time. It takes a long time. That is, I think I just got into the... Like managing expectations, that was what I was doing. Mm. Particularly with my first, that was what I was doing. All day, yeah. Um, so I think a lot of times your people struggle with things when they're trying to put too many things into life. And I just was feeding. To begin with, all you're doing is really sitting and feeding a baby. Yeah. yeah. So and I just feed. was doing that. Mm. But I think having read about and understanding like the size of a baby's belly, you know, if you kind of understand that they've got a small belly, then you you kind of understand they're going to have to feed frequently and therefore you sort of, you know, the rational side of you understands, well, it's going to take ages and you're just going to have to do it lots of times mm. because they can only take a tiny bit in their tiny little belly. Mm. I think connecting the like cycle of digestion and then also their sleep cycles are actually the same amount of time. So they take 45 minutes to digest milk, 45 minutes to complete a sleep cycle. And then you realise, oh, that's why I'm feeding so much. That's why they're waking so yeah. much. And it norm- I think it's normalising. Yeah, once it? you yeah. understand. So I, I guess I did read about those sorts of things mm. and was on board with that. And I didn't have a shortage of milk, that is for sure. (laughs) I live right next to a children's centre and they said they had a lactation consultant who Mm. did a breastfeeding cafe. 
And I thought, oh, this would be quite a nice thing to do. But I think the word cafe is totally wrong because I think of a cafe as like a group of women getting together and having a breastfeeding session or, you know, and having a chat. But really it was you sit in a long queue and wait to have a one-to-one conversation with her. And I didn't have any problems with breastfeeding. And I just thought it'd be nice to see some other ladies um, and, you know, meet some other mothers. But my problem was that it was just, it just was running down to my toes. Yeah. You know, and then you can't talk about it because... The three of you, you're saying, oh, you know, it was a bit challenging. It's like, well, it's not difficult. Uh, like, so I'm not allowed to talk about it because I'm not having the problems. So, you know, like, it's still boring. It's still isolating, but I'm not allowed to talk about yeah, it. I think you, you should know. talk about but it because you, I think people need to know. That's why that I'm here, can, I'm yeah, here you, today. Because I think like it's shout a, it out. If everyone thinks it's really hard yeah. and that everyone else finds it really, really hard, then maybe then you're more prone to not pushing through and not feeding mm. when... You can. Mm -hmm. And that's the one of the reasons why I was very open with breastfeeding out in public Mm. was I was hearing some extraordinary stories from women whose husbands told them they weren't allowed to breastfeed in public, Mm. whose husbands had who thought their breasts were sexual things and and that actually the breasts were his and not for the baby. For for people who were told that their like I, I know someone that was expressing every single feed because her husband wanted to be as involved in feeding the baby. Mm -hmm. And so she expressed he bottle-fred it. Every single feed that that baby had for six months didn't come from the breast, but was breastfeed. I mean, how do you make yourself... That's exhausting. But also Um, you're taking away the advantages because the advantage of breastfeeding is you can whip it out whenever you need it. Yeah, Mm. and you don't have to sterilise it. No. I mean, you know, have a bath. Or warm it up. Um, And there's so many ways that a father can bond with their child that is not breastfeeding. And I mean, I had some awkward, you know, people saying, oh, you can't do that in public. And I just thought, I'm confident. I've got all the privileges, you know. I'm a white, 45-year-old, middle-class woman. I've got privilege. And I know that, you know, like if I was 22, 24, I would feel less confident. Mm. So I just thought, you know, I'm just quietly going to do a bit of my thing by just mm. not in a showy way, mm. but just the baby needs a feed. But it probably, it. as you say, it makes probably a huge difference that your husband was so supportive of you. Yeah, I mean, he's a very conservative English, Polish man. You know, he's not into public displays of mm. anything. But women's breasts are designed to feed babies. Mm. You know, like in any other way, he's, he mm. wouldn't be. And did you feel, you know, with, with fellow mom friends that it was hard, given that it was so easy for you, was it hard for you to speak to them about your experience? Because as you say, it's still, even though it's easy, it's still, you're still going through this journey, for a better word. And it can be tough, even though it's, it's easy, relatively speaking. It felt like I was making it hard for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, my children, I mean, my daughter's nearly four and she's still, she's very beginning now not to wake up in the night. But if you're breastfeeding, you often then feed a lot in the nighttime and, Mm. you know, and therefore you're not having a solid night's sleep. I think if I understand rightly, if you bottle feed, then you can, they often sleep for longer at night so there was this feeling that you know you're making it harder for yourself mm. you know so therefore you can't talk about it i think i wish i'd known that breastfeeding for some women wasn't hard because for me i didn't i didn't realize that mm. breastfeeding could actually be quite a straightforward procedure and actually it's only now with my third 
I mean, with my second, I was like, yes, it's cool. We've, we've got this. My nipples are totally tough and mm. they are know what they're going to do. And, you know, we were back to crack nipples and bleeding and blisters. Mm. And I, oh, I just thought that was a normal thing. It was like a rite of passage that you had to go through in your breastfeeding. So, you know, listening to you say it was actually relatively straightforward. And the fact that I'm now experiencing it myself, I'm a bit like, wow, mm. that's amazing mm. you know and it feel, it does it feels like a privilege for me to be able to do that I agree well then it's you know you go on mum's net or some other and whilst I totally get that some people need to use formula some people choose to use formula and both of those are fine mm. I have no issues you know mm. fed is fed as soon as like as soon as there's any inkling of positivity or about breastfeeding mm. I guess because people do have this internal is it sense of failure or that they perceive that they're doing the wrong thing or they're not giving their child the best I you know like that they there's this overemphasis on you know that you don't have to breastfeed and mm. you know is that something you can relate to Natalie I see it with work that there's this sort of whole line of fed is best and for me, it's like, no, no, fed is like baseline. <laughs> like fed is what needs to happen. Like fed is not best. That is what has to happen. Mm. What is best is being informed, whether, you know, having the confidence and the education of knowing why you're breastfeeding. Like It goes both ways. Some people feel that they have to breastfeed and they hate it. And then they're persevering, persevering, persevering because fed is best, breastfeeding is best. And then they completely turn into this different human and that's not okay. Just as the people who haven't had the breastfeeding support then go to formula and you see huge amounts of breastfeeding trauma post six months when people have stopped breastfeeding and they hadn't wanted to because they haven't had the lactation consultant in the breastfeeding cafe because they weren't aware of it or you know, they haven't had the partner going, okay, I'll change the bum. You were feeding in the night. I'm going to change the bum so you get that extra few minutes sleep, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think fed is best is a really poisonous phrase because it doesn't help anybody. But yeah, I, my daughter was, it was a really easy journey. She literally did that, that weird, like, you know, you put them on your belly and they like a caterpillar, like, oh, that's a bit alien, a bit like, okay, this is what we're meant to do. This is very weird. Found my boob and it was... Like, that was it. I can remember there was an amazing maternity assistant just as we were about to be discharged. She sort of saw me all like that thing, you know, they're holding the head all fingers and thumbs. Like, why can't they just like get to the, there's this huge nipple here. Just get to it. And she just looked at me. She's like, I've got five children. This is what I do. And she showed me this like, you know, sandwich push on manoeuvre and that was it we never looked back and it was incredible it was amazing I then with my daughter got postnatal anxiety and breastfeeding became all consuming it was like my control point like probably could have really have done with using a bit of formula just to free some headspace but I was so fixed on breastfeeding is best you know I'm probably not being a best a, a great mum because I'm feeling so low but at least I'm doing a really good at job at breastfeeding and she you know we carried on our journey till she was about 18 months and it was positive but it was really all consuming and it was you know my control it was how I controlled what was going on because I couldn't control everything else because being a new mum is really hard you know and then with my son I went in it with like well that was so easy last time Woo, 
oh, it's going to be super easy this time. Way more confident as a mother, like had put things in place that I was hoping would help my mental health. He was born at home on the 7th of March, 2020. What a year to be born. And he came out, had an amazing home birth. Like he was born, you know, surgery started at two in the afternoon. He was born at half five. Easy, amazing. And then he came out and he just like, his mouth was just like, like literally clenched shut, like eyes shut. Like no putting him to my boob would of help. No sandwich maneuver would help because his mouth was literally like, I'm just not interested. Super sleepy baby you know, like setting my alarm because I actually had to wake him up to like get him to feed. And then obviously the whole world shut down on like, what was it? 9th of March, 12th of March. Mm. And I was like, something is just not quite right. Like he just doesn't want to feed. Like he's being really like sleepy. No one would come out to us. I was calling up like the midwives and like, you know, just wake him up, just set your alarm. I was like, this is not, this just doesn't feel right. Like my instinct was like, alarm bells and then he started to be sick and when I say sick like I don't mean like that lovely little posset that they just do you know the little dribble I mean I would feed him I would burp him I would sit him here and the sick would have hit you or it would have hit you or it would have hit you Mm. it was exorcist style projectile vomiting I was like okay this really is not okay I was like calling up the breastfeeding nationwide helpline because still no one would like midwives were like we can't come out to see you um you can't come to see us and I was like this isn't right no no babes are just sick you can't you know that whole thing of you're a second time mom you should know this I was like my first one calling you yeah my firstborn was he she didn't even do the like little dribbly sick ever so I was like oh maybe this is what people mean when mm. babies are sick and then like the internal alarm was going this is not right this is not right and it got to the point where I think at around three weeks, I'd laid him down. Bearing in mind he's not being weighed because no one's coming out. You can't go to see anyone. I lay him down in the buggy and my daughter looked over him and she the sick hit her in the face. And I was just like, by this point we were changing sheets about five or six times in the night. We were being told by my mother-in-law, who's a midwife, like, just hold him more and so we were holding for like an hour or two after a feed then putting him down and then it would still come out I was like okay what what is going on finally finally like was like we have to see someone went to see a midwife who was like an angel like she just looked at him she's like well he hasn't put he literally hasn't he's below his birth weight um still three weeks So usually they would expect babies to be, they say 10 days, but I think realistically it's usually around between 10 and 14 days, my experience anyway. And she was like, so what's happening? I explained to her and then she saw the sick and she was like, don't go home, go to A&E. The nearest A&E, children's A&E was shut, had to walk to like from, where were we? We were in somewhere in Camden to Whittington, so about 40 or 50 minute walk just birthed a child and saying go to yeah, A&E and like I'm just like this little zombie and got there and they realized um after seeing him be sick did a scan on his tummy and he had something called pyloric stenosis which basically means the muscle between his stomach and his intestines had closed off it had grown so thick that it couldn't pass the milk through the stomach to the intestines so it had to get out so that's why it did this ejection 
okay, we're going to have to blue light you to Great Ormond Street now. And I'm like, what? I can't see my... She was like, I hadn't spoken to anyone. I'd literally just left. And I'm like, yeah, we can't really let anyone in, but you're in the clean ward. So we'll let your husband in because you won't be seeing him for X amount of time. So got to, yeah, got to Great Ormond Street. And then he it was all sort of like, I think you were just in this... I think as a mum, you go into this like coping like okay can't really think about what's going on I just need to be strong for everybody else around me so the the saving grace for him was that I hadn't listened to anyone when they said don't feed him after he's been sick I had continued to feed him because I was like he's hungry which meant he wasn't dehydrated so they didn't have to get his hydration levels up before he then had to have surgery which because of covid couldn't be keyhole surgery who knew you can't do keyhole surgery when something to do with the gas they use to make it, I, I could be wrong, the gas that they use to maybe expand things can dissipate the virus into the room so it makes it more vulnerable for the surgeons. So we had like full-on surgery, like before, like it was just all, it was such a weird time. Like, you know, when you're like, what is going on with the world? I wasn't allowed to stay with him, but I wasn't allowed to go home. So they put me in this weird like halfway house that there's all around Great Ormond Street. There's these houses for parents to stay in. But I was like, I'm so close to home. Oh no, you need to stay. But you're not allowed to feed him because we have to drain his stomach. So I was like, I produce a lot of milk. And so I'm there, like literally just in this weird room, boobs, just so engorged, haven't got like, my baby's not here. Like, where's my baby? Not even in the same place as my baby. I've just handed him over to strangers. I was like, that's it. I was like fully resigned. This is the end of our breastfeeding journey. How am I ever going to get over this? Had the operation, still was being sick. And they discovered that he had super bad reflux as well. And he went on medication to sort of help that a little and then as soon as he went on that had an amazing obstetrician there that was like no we don't want to give him formula you obviously are really passionate breastfeeding it's the support you know Mm. if you pump you know we do want to see how much he's taking so they were like let's pump you give him a bottle and then once he's had one bottle and he's not been sick you can then put him back on the breast and I think that took five days to establish that and then after that, it was like, it was just fine. Like he had super bad reflux and he was on medication till he was about six months old. But he's still, I mean, he is boob obsessed. <laughs> Kid won't give it up. Oh, any well, that's tips? My problem. Any <laughs> tips? Anyone? <laughs> yeah. And now it's like, he's a hundred percent not getting any milk. It is pure comfort. And I think that's okay. We need to normalize that breastfeeding isn't just about nutrition it's about their emotional needs because they're not a sexual object they are for breastfeeding (laughs) and that's what they're designed to do so whilst it was a really like intense journey to begin with I still feel really positive about it like I still feel quite empowered and I think I felt like if that had happened with my daughter I would have crumbled because I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. Mm. Where with him, I could advocate for him, could advocate for myself. And I wasn't taking no. I was like, this is not right. Mm. You know, if I had two more weeks at home without seeing anyone, who knows what would have happened. This is what I was thinking. It feels like such a near close call or Mm. near miss. Absolutely. And that's what I got so out. I think I even mentioned it to not logged a complaint, but said, actually, I want this on 
a file because that was the thing. I think then the health visitor called me and was like, oh, we're noticing strange A&E pattern visit because I then had to go to <laughs> A&E again. And then because all the weird, the children's A&Es were doing strange things. Sometimes they were open, sometimes they weren't. So you, we were going to one and then not to the other because I think his like incision got looked a bit weird. So we wanted to get it checked out. And um, I was like, are you like, what are you saying here? Like, mm. you had no interest in helping me when I needed your help. Mm. And now you're calling me, accusing me of whatever you are accusing me of. It's like, have you looked at the notes about why we have been to A&E? And she said, oh, oh, yes, I see now. And I was like, this call could have destroyed another mum, mm. you know, you mm. making that oh. accusation. And again, it's about having that strength and that privilege to be like, actually, no, 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 this isn't mm. okay. Mm. But, you know, I think the argument was we were in a pandemic and no one knew what they were doing. But mm. it's for me, it was an unexcusable mm. mistake that they made. Yeah, I think I would have crumbled with my first one if I'd gone through that. I don't think you realise it until when you're in it and when you reflect on it, and you're like, oh, okay, that was a bit, mm. that was, it was crazy. And I think it was heightened by being in lockdown mm. I think if it was not in lockdown and it was like very considered okay go home get your stuff you know you your husband can drop in you know for me I had never been away from my daughter that long either and suddenly for her it was my mum's just had a baby <laughs> I can't see any of my normal caregivers and my mum's disappeared and she's there like what is going on it was just it, I mean for everyone it was a weird time how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But now you have fed your list of what into you toddlerhood yes he's yeah and saga i know you are feeding your youngest as well yes <laughs> how is it to feed i a- didn't intend to feed extensively mm. i how, thought how old is she, she again she's nearly four nearly four yeah i think um, that means like a medal i think you've that's well, incredible it's, uh, no I, i'm i think it's something to be so proud of really i really do thank you I'm totally over it, frankly. <laughs> I, um, I, I did intend to feed till two. The World Health Organization says two is a good age yeah. to feed till. And with my first, I, I fed beyond that, but I discovered that there is absolutely no support for people that, do f- that are feeding till that age. Mm. I went to the health visitor because I'd been to... Uh, the, what I'd learnt from reading online and stuff was don't offer don't refuse (laughs) and I and I said well you know I just he doesn't seem to be stopping he he seems quite keen and I I'm I'm ready to stop things and she looked at me with absolute disgust horror properly and said I'm gonna have to get my colleague in here and then I had two women telling me that and he was he was nearly two. He wasn't even two yet. Mm. Well, that was the last feed. You'll never feed him again. He's far too old to be feeding. And like, I'm not some hippie mother, but I did go a bit on the attachment, you know, res- being responsive to my children's needs mm. and being respectful for them as far as you can try. Um, <laughs> you know, so I definitely wasn't going to just stop feeding him like instantly. Mm. But what I learned from that conversation was, well, there's no help here. Yeah. I think there's such an assumption that health visitors, doctors have intense training in breastfeeding and their breastfeeding knowledge is so minimal. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's understandable given the very low levels of breastfeeding in this country and Mm. and particularly, I mean, the number of, you'll know better or someone else will know better, but the, the stats for feeding after six weeks, never mind feeding after six months, uh, so so low and therefore you know health physicists their own personal experience or is going to be not from a place of like extensive so chicken and egg is that because of them not having invested in the education for them as a professional yeah you know it's what comes first them mm. not having given being able to give but the there's support. this whole sort of emphasis on you know not telling people that they shouldn't bottle feed for example you know like mm. i guess i don't know but all I knew was there wasn't any support. And what stopped my son breastfeeding was there being absolutely no milk because I was pregnant with his sister. Mm. Um, I'm not having another baby. Mm. And after having Liv, when she was like eight months old, I or maybe before then, I started having sort of postnatal depression. And it, I don't even know if it's postnatal depression, but we're putting it under that. Mm. You know, I've been supported in that way. I think it's really... There was just too much life going on and I just mm. found I was overwhelmed and I you know, reached my peak of how much I could 
do. Mm. But like you say, breastfeeding became the thing that I could do. And actually I could turn off, I could watch a thousand episodes of Grey's Anatomy or mm. whatever else. But I knew, you know, I was fulfilling her needs. And I was getting a lot of anger. That was my mm. sort of overwhelm came out as anger. That I find it really difficult to hold a, like to say no and to really hold on to that no. Mm. Basically, toddlers, if once they've decided they want <laughs> breastfeed, you know, this little tiny baby you're holding there, you take that boob away, they'll go, uh, for a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Then they develop personality. They can fight physically yeah. like they're over you. They're it's crawling, the they're pulling. Oh, yeah. They're screaming, you know, like they know what they want. She knows what she wants. And I find it really hard to, like, I can do it for a period. I Like I can be respectful of holding my boundary, but being respectful of her needs to want it. And I can do that for a while, but, you know, four o'clock in the morning. I'm working really hard to sort of try and be sensitive to her needs. Mm. Whilst also also trying to be sensitive to my needs. Particularly that my husband doesn't want to hear the noise and, you know, like mm. wake up. We live in a terraced house. I think we could wake up three neighbours along, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it doesn't stop. It's not like, you know, have half an hour of her shouting and then that'd be it. Mm. Oh, it, could, it could go on all night. At some point she'll be ready, Yeah, you know. And uh, she or she's beginning to like, she has some, she turns over, she goes to sleep. Mm. So we are on the way. But this is a conversation there's no one to have with at all. No. You know, even though we look, when you look at sort of biological norms, if we were, didn't have the pressures of stopping, I think it is generally they self wean if we allow them to get on with it by around four or five like you know that whole thing of like you don't want to be like someone said to me oh you're going to be breastfeeding him when he's 18 I'm like when have you ever I mean my son who's seven loves breastfeeding yeah he's not going to have any now (laughs) oh I can remember when I was breastfeeding Bodie and Archer looked and she was like so she would have been two and a bit like two two years nine months She's like, can I, uh, can I have a go? And I'm like, you can, but you'll, you will not remember how to do it. And she was like, it was like sucking a straw. She's like, I can't get any mummy. There's none left. And I was like, there's a hundred percent, a lot of milk in there. You just, you just don't know how to do it anymore. anymore. You don't need it. And I totally feel you with the like, trying to stop. Like it is, it is. I've basically given up on trying to stop again because I just, it's such it's a really, fine You need balance. to have a big resource, emotional resource, mm. to be able to hold the boundaries mm. when somebody really doesn't want to do something. Mm. But at the same time, you know, I'm totally on to it. I would like to have a full night's sleep. Mm. And, and, it just and I've exhausting. got the aversion now. It's like, oh, just... I don't think I ever understood what being touched out really meant until (laughs) I had children. And something like this morning, so Bodhi has one, like he is weaning himself off and he now has one feed in the morning. He also does this thing where he goes, hide, hide. And I'm like, okay, what does this do? Okay, fine, you can hide. And he gets, he literally gets in my top and he gets his head on my boob. He doesn't feed. He just just needs that to hide, hide. And I'm like... (laughs) Oh, I've 
I've given I've given so much to you today. It's now six o'clock in the evening, and, and I I'm just over it. don't want to be touched. Yeah. Dressed up like I sometimes I don't know. This is like a secret that I probably haven't told anyone. Is like I just go and lock myself in the bathroom just for like five minutes. Just five minutes of I don't even turn the light on. Darkness. Mum is hiding. Just not being touched. You know. I mean, I can totally relate to that. My younger one. Still, the breast is not just for breastfeeding. Every morning before school, not only do I get a cuddle, but the boobs get a little cuddle and a little squeeze. That's a regular feature. That whole thing of like hiding inside my top and just laying on the boob. This morning, you know, we still have the kind of coming into my bed and then pulling up my top and just likes to suckle, likes to lay her head on there. But a while ago, she was doing this thing where she wasn't just hiding in my top. She wanted to reenact the whole me giving birth to her. <laughs> <laughs> so she go in my class. She's like, mommy, pretend you're borning me. <laughs> and for, for a while, that became her thing. Like, And I think there's something about having the close physical contact. Because yeah. she also quite likes, she, you know, the skin to skin. So she'll like take her top off and then like climb into my top and then I birth her and then I put her on the boob and it's something that she really enjoys doing. There must and be some sort of symbolism in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and how old is she? She's six. She's, like, oh. She's just in six. Mm. I think there's this, they know they're, they're growing and, and that it's over and they also want to get back. You know, like my daughter is a big girl now, she says. But at the same time, she's suddenly doing all the, like, she wants to be a baby. Mm. And, you know, like, I think it's the more she knows that she's, like, that she feels within herself that she's becoming a big girl. Mm. Not just that we are, as a society, and we as her parents are expecting her to be big. She feels it. And maybe it's the same. It's like this, it's, it's almost within touch, but it, it's, they know that it's going, it's mm. over. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful and so much of it I enjoy, but there I totally relate to, you know, there are moments where it's like, it's nine o'clock at night and I want you to go to sleep and I really don't want to birth you right now. Yeah. Like, please, can you just go into your own bed and go to sleep? Because I just don't have the energy for this right now. So you all weaned at least one baby, right? Yeah. How is that, Barira? What was your experience? So with my eldest, as I said, it was that really intense breastfeeding journey, particularly the first six to nine months. I don't think I had a feed until she was six months old where it wasn't painful. And then once we kind of got to that nine month mark and it, we, I was feeding more regularly and it was it, some of the most beautiful memories that I have. And I really wanted to honour that. Um... And I, for some reason, also, I think it's not just the World Health Organization who recommends two years, but within my cultural context, two years is a very important marker. And beyond that, somehow seen to be, I'd like to say inappropriate, but it wasn't just inappropriate. I don't know, there was a strong kind of resistance and I had somehow imbued this within myself. Mm. I mean, I was actually pregnant two days before my daughter's second birthday. But two years was the mark that we ended, we decided to stop breastfeeding. And actually with her stopping breastfeeding, we'd started having this conversation quite early on. And it was coming up to her second birthday and I knew it was going to be our last feed and I really wanted to honour it. And so we went away. I was living in Tanzania at the time. So we sat on the beach by the Indian Ocean and, you know, it was her birthday and we talked about this is going to be our last feed 
and it was just magical, absolutely mm. magical. We watched the kingfishers darting into the sea and we said goodbye to the boob. And that was such a cherished memory that mm. I have. And I love the fact that we did honour that. And there was a, a closure for me and for my daughter. And, you know, when I had my second child, she also wanted to kind of, she was intrigued and wanted to try the boob again. Mm. But with my second daughter, I carried on until she was maybe almost three. And there wasn't this point of closure. There was no kind of, I tried to do the whole, you know, we're going to the beach and we're going to have a last feed. I was living in Tunisia at the time and I, I tried to do that, but there was no cutoff point. It just kind of petered out. And in a way, it's quite, you know, I love the memory I have with my first daughter because it's it's something that I really cherish. And I feel like I didn't have, I didn't mark the end with my second daughter but I also feel like it was a much healthier way to go mm. about it in terms of it worked with her natural rhythm and flow. Mm. And your daughter that you had your two-year celebration, she just didn't ask for it after that point? Um, it was, you know, it was relatively <laughs> easy, but I think she's also... She was ready. She, it was, but, and also a personality thing. You know, we'd constantly be in communication and there was just this really easy flow and rapport. And I remember when I was pregnant, even before I realised I was pregnant, she would be like sitting on my lap and she'd be like, Mummy, your boobers yeah. smell different. And I was growing another child and there was she was picking mm. up on the scent and it was really interesting. You know, there were moments where I think there was a, a few times where she did ask. And that's why I found it quite painful to, when I look back at it, because at that point, I think instinctively what I would have done would have been, you're not quite ready yet, let's let's continue. Mm. But somehow I'd kind of done, had in my head this idea that two years and that needs to be a cutoff point. And so I was like, oh, you know, do you remember we talked about it? And do you remember that we said? And then she'd kind of, you know, think about it for a moment and then talk about something else. In a way, it was that easy. But actually, for me, it was one of the few times I wasn't going with my intuition. I wasn't going with what felt instinctively right. And that's surprising to kind of look back at now and go, it's interesting how that two-year mark somehow did kind of settle in me in a way that I, that quite often quite questioning of these norms. Eliza, do you remember the last feed with your firstborn? I don't necessarily remember the last feed, but I remember that it, making this very clear-cut decision that this was it. And it felt like it was a little bit out of my hands. Um, because I know that sort of from about 12 months, my parents-in-law were very sort of like, oh, why are you still breastfeeding? Mm. No, he's too old for this. He's too old for this. And that kind of then filtered down. And then my husband was sort of started going, oh, well, I think it's probably time to give this up. He doesn't mm. need it. And I was incredibly reluctant to give it up. But then I got pregnant with my second. And because I have what's known as an insufficient cervix, which is a lovely term that they give you, they sort of said that if you potentially keep on feeding, you could be at a higher risk or an even higher risk of um, late miscarriage or an mm. early birth. And so for me, I was like, whoa, okay, that's it. That's mm. a good enough reason for me. Whereas I didn't really have a reason. There mm. wasn't a good enough reason. Just sort of parents and law saying, oh, I think it's a good time mm. to give up now. For me, that wasn't a reason. Mm. But this was something where I went, okay, right, I this is something that has to be done. And I've since found out that that wouldn't necessarily have been the case. 
So I sort of felt slightly hard done by that. Mm. Um, But at the same time, it did feel like a relatively emotionally painless thing for me to do because I knew it was something I just had to do. So we did it and it was hard. But one of the ways we got around it is I would sort of just try and be absent for the times where he would normally feed. So I just wasn't there. And we had also managed to get him onto a bottle. So that felt like it was an okay compromise. Mm. So he didn't take the bottle for until he was about a year or so. But when he was on the bottle, it, it kind of felt like it was an okay transition. And then with my second, we fed till two and a half years. And again, my husband was a bit like, oh, I think it's the breastfeeding. It's impacting with his sleep. Oh. So we're not getting any sleep. So maybe it's the breastfeeding. Maybe that needs to stop. And I was just like, I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. Mm. I'm going to carry on. I'm going to carry on. And then I got to the sort of similar point where I just sort of went, you know what? I think I'm done with this. Actually, I want my boobs back. I kind of want to go out and buy a bra that actually fits me, <laughs> yeah. um, which I still haven't done. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that that was interesting because we sort of we sort of made a bit of a joke about it, and we're like, "Sorry, restaurants closed. It's only open at these times." <laughs> and so he kind of had opening and closing times for the yeah. restaurants, and um, and then we just kind of cut it down, and then he just kind of forgot mm. that the boob was even there. Yeah. And emotionally, how how does it feel to give up that last? cuddle oh god it was awful mm-hmm. it was awful I, I remember being there and just being like is is this going to be the last one is this going to be the last mm. one? Oh, i just don't know um it made me it made me really really sad mm. but then there was also a part of me that's slightly hopeful we might have another one mm. and like just just thinking about it now there's part of me that's like what happens when we finish with this one <laughs> yeah. am i gonna have to go and have another one no i think that's it that's it <sighs> natalie I we got to about 18 months and I can't remember what, I think something happened with my teeth or my tooth. I can't remember what happened. And they I needed antibiotics. And I by this point I was kind of I was done. I was so done. I had sorted my head out, I was feeling really strong, really like in a great place. And they were a bit wishy-washy, like, mm, not 100% sure if you can use these particular antibiotics with breastfeeding. And for me, I was like, great this is an excuse and I was like I'm so done I I sort of spoke to my husband I was like am I being out of order and he was like you fed her for 18 months you know you're allowed to want to have your body back Mm. and we did like we had a lovely bath together we read a book and then I sort of said to her like we can have one last feed but after that you know mummy can't feed you anymore and we had a lovely feed put her to bed and that was it she didn't ask for it again she didn't tug at the bra strap and I then felt like how dare you (laughs) you're supposed to really want this you're supposed to really want this and I was like have I been like forcing this on her (laughs) have the the boob (laughs) not like literally not bothered like she was so and it it made me feel better because I was like she must have been ready because if she hadn't she would have been you know at me yeah so it was bittersweet it Mm. was what I needed and what I wanted and I went and got some amazing underwear in my previous life I was an underwear designer so those bras just like it's almost like PTSD for me it's like (laughs) they're just not fun are they Mm. and I can remember having a fitting and feeling like oh my boobs are in the right place and then you know it all filters down I felt better like not that clothes mean anything but like I think it's the time spent on yourself is really important yeah so bittersweet yeah still waiting for that waiting for that final fee two and a bit year old (laughs) we are coming to an end with this podcast now but 
it's been a really really nice and honest discussion and I can relate to so many things that you've said and I think other women will be able to as well so thank you very much thank you thank Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.